You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. My name is Andrew Burleson, and I'm uh, here interviewing Chuck today. We're doing a little bit of role reversal. I'm uh, having Chuck be our invited guest. I'm playing the role of interviewer. So uh, You're actually in Brainerd, too. Yeah, I actually am live in studio uh, here <laughs> hosting the podcast today. <laughs> so we just finished a little uh, short where we caught up on Chuck's vacation and his adventures oh, yeah. over the last couple of All the of weeks. really important things. Um, if you guys are interested in that, that's the previous podcast. You can catch up on everything Chuck's been up to. But he finished that podcast with a story about getting stuck in traffic in L.A. Yeah. And uh, I think that's a perfect segue into what I wanted to pick your brain about today, Chuck, which is this idea of mobility or misunderstanding mobility. Strong Towns has been sort of working on, you've been working on off and on for the last couple of years, this idea. A lot of times we have a curbside chat. And afterwards, people get the idea of a strode in their head for the first time. This idea of there's this compromise between street and road that's really the worst of both worlds. It's not the best of both worlds. And it's all over the place. And we have this problem with it. And, and people don't really know what to do about it. So, so the question is, what next? And we've been trying to develop a series of responses to the question of, so what do you do about strodes? Right. And, and what is it about mobility that we fail to understand? So why don't you kind of introduce that idea to us and then we can sort of dig into it a little bit. Yeah. It took me a while to figure out too, because these places would just drive me insane. I really didn't know why. Like I, I didn't have the tools to like really explain why this didn't work and why this didn't make any sense. I just looked at it and knew that it didn't, but I wasn't able to like elaborate on it. If you go back to like my Ted talk, I never use the word strode. I talk about the important difference between a road and a street. And that was like in the evolution of this thought that was like a few steps beyond like the primordial soup, you know, <laughs> you know, we hadn't got to the monkey in the tree yet. We were still at like algae, you know, because the word strode is nowhere in that thing. But it was like shortly after that where I'm like, okay, what I'm talking about is a strode. It's a street road hybrid. It's this thing that functions. It's trying to do two things at the same time. I call it the futon of transportation, right? Because a futon is an uncomfortable couch that makes into an uncomfortable bed. And a strode is a piece of transportation infrastructure that tries to do two things at once and does neither of them very well. So a road is a high-speed connection between two places. If you think of a modern road as a replacement of the railroad, a railroad is a road on rails. You didn't have frontage railroads. You have drive-through railroads. You got on at one spot. <laughs> you had a high-speed connection to another spot where you got off, right? Well, you know, the word transportation implies yeah, going I, from port to port. Thank you. Yeah, yeah precisely. You know, and I should have paid more attention in Latin. <laughs> mm -hmm, sure. But yeah, you know, you're right. It means to go across. You're moving from one place to another. So you look at these places and because we have turned our built environment largely over to transportation engineers, when they get into urban areas, when they get into cities, they're still building with the same basic like cookbook and playbook that they're using for highways in between our places. Really, when you look at suburban cities or places that have been built post-World War II, where there was nothing and now there's something, those places have been built almost exclusively on this model. So you have a place that is designed as its central feature to be the ability to move automobiles quickly. The problem is, in a strode environment, no cars get to move quickly. 
you don't get to go 70 miles an hour in your suburban neighborhood, even though it's designed with highway geometries, you know, really wide lanes, turning lanes, all this stuff. No one gets to drive real fast because it, A, it wouldn't be safe. B, you've got speed limits, et cetera. There's all these constraints. So we're making these like massively huge investments in roadway infrastructure in order to move cars quickly, yet nobody moves quickly. There's some also like downsides of this. Today, I was driving through town here and I was actually trying to go look at a lot that I was interested in kind of like scoping out, right? And I was trying to get across what is a downtown street, but functions like a strode. They basically have taken and turned it over to automobiles and there wasn't hardly any traffic at it at all, but I couldn't get across this thing. And why couldn't I get across? Because all the traffic that was coming, the little bit that was there was moving at such high speeds that there wasn't a gap. There wasn't a gap that was going to allow me to cross the street. Now, were they moving at high speeds? Were they moving at 70 miles an hour? No, they were moving at like 40 miles an hour, right? But it was too fast for me to actually shoot the gap, like make the gap across these four lanes. But there wasn't enough traffic to actually like, it was like a a car, five seconds, a car, three seconds, a car. I mean, there's no traffic at all in terms of volume. So what strode environments do from a road standpoint is they invest huge amounts of money in moving cars. They fail to move them quickly and they screw up the entire built environment in the process. What's a street? A street is, and always has been, a platform for creating and capturing value. If you think back to like, an old castle, you know, with the keep, you know, you got the castle walls or you got the, the old like medieval city with the walls around it. Inside is where you had like all these streets with all this stuff, right? And that was where you, if you were going to build and, and maintain and, and what have you, that was basically like where the wealth was going to be concentrated. If you had any money at all, that's where you lived, right? Inside the walls. You had all the peasants on the outside. You would go out and tax the heck out of them. Uh, and take, you know, take what they did and then bring it back in and they concentrate all the wealth. And so streets are about creating value. Elaborate on that, creating value for who? That's a really good question. In terms of like the way I look at streets, that's almost like a neutral answer. If you are a government, like if you're a city, your streets are where you're creating your tax base that you're going to tax. If you are an individual, the street is essentially the platform that's going to allow you to invest in a property and create value out of it. If you're a company, the street is what's going to allow you to function and access patrons and customers and what have you. It's less important like who the value accumulates to in any type of system. Sure. The street is where you're going to build and accumulate and create that value. Yeah. I think based on what you're describing, I would say wealth is the word you're really going yeah, for. Yeah, wealth. I mean, my understanding of the history of a street... If you go back, and I lived in a little hill town in Italy for half a year. Yeah. And the streets there are yeah. the in-between place. They're the, the place of commerce. It's where the exchange yeah. happens. Yeah, this is and where... It's really, a- it's in a way, it's, it's not unlike any other kind of market. In those streets, they're literally not wide enough for a car to, to go through, right. a lot of them. Although Italians are very brave about driving cars in yeah. very small places. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so sometimes the car can fit through, and you're surprised to find that yeah. a car can fit through, but not with the side mirrors extended. Yeah. <laughs> and they'll drive that anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, back in the, but, the primordial soup days of figuring this out, 
my first trip to Italy was like a big revelation. You know, I'm an engineer. I'm an Americanized engineer. I get off the plane. I'm walking through these small towns in Italy and I'm just laughing. There's streets where I can, like my arm span can touch touch both both walls. Yeah, totally. And it's like, how, this is insane. Like, how does this work? And it wasn't till I dropped the Americanism you know, all my preconceived notions about how places should be because I didn't know anything else because I'd only lived here in the United States that I started to understand that, oh, the function of a street is not to move cars. <laughs> you know, it's to actually like build the wealth of the community and, and moving cars is a means to an end. It's not the end unto itself. It seems like such an obvious thing. But for an engineer, a street is about moving cars. I mean, that's what it is. It's, yeah. It is not a street. It's actually public right-of-way. And the public right-of-way is about putting in utilities and moving cars. That's what it's about. When you start to realize that, no, the cars are a means to an end. The end is actually building the wealth of the community, creating yeah. value. You get into a European city, and what you see is that the street is the public realm. And to say that really means something, because this is the... In especially in older, tighter places, yeah, it's the entire public space. Right. There is no, there right. is no other space. It's literally all of the space between. Right. And I had a hard time with that concept because we're here in Brainerd today, you know, central Minnesota. I mean, I was raised by Democrat farm labor family. You know, we're very much not like communal or anything. <laughs> the label public realm seemed like a little too like socialistic, like a little too yeah. touchy feely yeah, to me. When you get there, I think it makes a kind of sense. It absolutely it's makes the sense. hallways of a building. It's literally like if, yes. the, if the village or the town was sort of one big complex. Yeah. And the streets there are like the hallways right. and the lobbies or the common rooms or the living rooms. Th- that's exactly when you look at a hotel, I mean, you don't call the hallway or the entryway, you know, the public realm, <laughs> but you the ha- common space. It's the common space, yeah, right? The common space. And, and that's a better word for it. Yeah. When I started to look at my hometown here and like, you know, why does this place suck? And why is this not working? And why are we perpetually broke? And then you start to go back and look at the photos. You realize that the value that the city had in its heyday, like when this was the place to be in central Minnesota, the buildings fronted and created this like spectacular public realm. Mm -hmm. And everything that was built basically increased the value for everybody else. You know, if if I was going to build along a street in downtown Brainerd back in the early 1900s, I would have built in line with everybody else. I would have built my building in a certain way that complemented everybody else. And I wouldn't have done that because it was like this selfless community driven person. I would have done it because that was in like my best interest, right? To basically be part of this pattern. And by doing that, my self interest actually optimized the wealth of the community. You look today, and if I own a property in downtown Brainerd, it's actually in my optimum self-interest to tear down the neighboring property, turn it into a parking lot, and put up a big-ass billboard to draw everybody to me at the expense of everyone else. And so this problem we've had with turning our streets into roads or turning our streets into strodes is actually made one where it's put the self-interest at odds with the collective interest. The old system put the self-interest in line with and kind of optimize with the collective interest. That's what happens in complex systems that evolve over time. But I think you could think of this like to extend the metaphor of what is a street in a, in a sense of a traditional city, in a historically traditional city. 
And I think it's important we try to keep in mind that, you know, humans have been building cities for literally thousands of years, yeah. according to one set of rules, and this new set of rules where a street is for moving cars is yeah. only within the last hundred years. It's that, a brand new experiment. Even, yeah, yeah. Even possible to be done that way. Right. But really, it's like if you had a big house, you had a bunch of kids, and you decided that the path for the kids to get to school in the morning that going through the family room upstairs and then down the stairs and then, you know, around through the, through the living room and then out the front door that I was taking too long. Right. And so you put fire escapes in the living room. Right. So they could just drop straight down. Right. And then that would definitely optimize the kids getting out the door in the morning. It, right. To get to school. And that's all you care about. Right. And you could put, put a, a damn slide in there. You, you know, a slide. So. <laughs> you could take the master bedroom and you could take a fire escape type of thing. Just right. like hang a, hang a metal stair. Yeah. Yeah. On the front of your house. Right. But you can imagine if you did this to your house, if you put fire slides in your house and you kind of took up your living room with those yeah. and you put a metal ladder going straight out of the, the bedroom for yourself to get straight to your car so you get out the door faster on your way to work. Well, what have you done to you the value of that house? a pretty crappy house, right? It's a pretty crappy house. Yeah. Well, how about, you know, the kids when they get home from school, they want to go straight to the backyard. But, you know, the fastest path to the backyard from the bus stop would be to go straight through the front door. Right. And, you know, straight through the house. So you go ahead and just, you know, knock out the walls that are in the way, clear all the obstacles out of the way, make the doors just be kind of like a swinging door that you can just push it and it'll just open right up. Right. You know, all those things would make the through traffic in the house more optimized, but they would also destroy the value of the house. Right. It would not be a comfortable place to live. Yeah. And really what you'd be left with is... Well, stay inside your room. The rooms in this house are nice. Right. The house is not nice. Right, right. Because the common areas have been destroyed. Right. And, you know, the common areas have been destroyed by these over-optimizations for passing through. And there you have, in a sense, what we've done to our cities. Right. And from a financial standpoint, we've just devastated them. I think to keep that analogy, like, take it to the next step, what we've also done then, too, is all of the new houses that we've built... Yeah, are designed ha- this way from the beginning. Are designed this way yeah. from the beginning. Right. And so... There's just, no living room. Right. They're just crappy to start out right. with. Right. Yeah. And they have no intrinsic value There's a beyond- fast food delivery chute instead of a kitchen. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so, you have your own room room. In your own room, you can put up your own posters of whatever you want and have your own music and your own like, you know, little place. But as soon as you leave your own room, you're in this like horrid environment. And the only thing redeeming about it is that you can very quickly get to the next room where you can shut it all off. Right. The problem is, is that when you go to resell that house now, it has like no intrinsic value at all beyond whatever's in that room. Well, and what you could see in that situation if everybody's house was like that, yeah. then everybody's house would have some kind of value. And you could say, well, our house isn't any less valuable than the neighbor's. Right, right. Yeah, that's true. But all these new houses are significantly right. less valuable right. than the good old-fashioned house that has a nice living room. Right? Yeah. I found myself being like, trying to avoid saying like radically crazy things. Uh, <laughs> Why? <you know>? Well, <laughs> because I, I don't, you know, I feel like this is a big message to swallow anyway without like just injecting like quotable insane things. When I was in Florida last week, I was chatting with this group of people. We got to talking about like contraction of cities. And, you know, I basically said like 90% of what we have from a land area standpoint in a city like, you know, I think I was in Stewart at the time, Stewart, Florida, which is not a bad place. But like 90% of the land area is just not financially viable. When you start to realize that and understand that this way you've described this house is basically like how we've built this country, you start to realize that like 90% of it is going to go away or be radically, radically changed because it can't continue beyond this like false financial system we built around it. That's the freaky part. 
Now, we've talked about this idea of this uh, project Strong Towns has been working on is misunderstanding mobility. Yeah. So and that might, that might change. About, <laughs> yeah, the title might change. This is sort of the work. This yeah. is the, the category label of this whole subject matter. Yeah. But we've been talking about the street level here and about how the idea that there is such a thing as a common area for a city or for a neighborhood. I know we've linked to Grayson Johnson's videos in the past. Right. She has some videos of Cambridge that are just amazing where you see what is it like to walk around Cambridge and it just kind of blows your mind because it feels like, oh, that's Disney World, right? Right. Only it's right. not. It's the regular place that these people get their groceries. Yeah. Know? So we've sort of established that idea that the idea of a street is to be a common area that's the place where community life happens, where life outside of the home takes place. And, you know, it's supposed to be something that's a, an asset to the community that makes property around it more valuable. And when you create a nice public environment, you create this nice street environment, you create property value, which accumulates wealth to anybody who's part of that. So everybody who's part of that system becomes more wealthy because you're all basically reinforcing each other's investments. Right. So we've sort of got that idea. I think that one is more intuitive than the other. Yeah. Which is the mobility part of this. So roads and how do they work? Right. Why is it that you don't get to move very fast on a strode? Well, because we've impaired it by trying to inject features of wealth creation. So you take your average strode and instead of being able to go 70 miles an hour as it's designed, you will have a slower speed limit so that you can have stop signals. So you can have frontage roads so you can have right in, right outs and crossover and, you know, all these different things so that along it, you can have development. So uh, this is all you, about access. Yeah. You take a, a good road and you turn it into a strode by adding access points. Engineers will tell you that it's not speed that kills. It's the difference in speed that kills. You know, if you're going 70 miles an hour and you hit a tree going 70 miles an hour in the same direction you are, there's not really going to be a problem <laughs> with that. The problem is when you're going 70 miles an hour and you hit the tree that is not moving, now you have the problem, right? You know, I've never seen a tree going 70 no, miles an hour. No, I haven't hour. either. But, you know, theoretically, <laughs> if you could accomplish that, there, there wouldn't really be a problem. It's all about creating access. And, and why do we try so hard to create the access? Because if you're a local government, there's very little cost for doing that. You know, you've got this highway that's moving a lot of cars. And if you can get an access off of that, you're not paying for the highway directly as a local government. You're not going to pay for the access, uh, maybe a small, small part of it, but the majority of it is going to be paid by someone else. So what you're doing is you're just essentially stealing or robbing or, you know, co-opting the collective wealth that has been built out of that highway investment for your locality that aligns with the interests of the private property owners that live along that in the short term. And so you have this kind of everyone's mutual interest at the local level is to co-opt and, and mine the value off of that highway, increase your property value, increase your local tax base, et cetera, et cetera. But what you do when you do that is you rob all the value out of that, that road, that high speed connection the types of development that we get out of that are not sufficient enough or they don't have enough value in themselves to either offset what you've stolen from the roadway or even justify over multiple life cycles 
the investment themselves. So how do you reconcile those two things that we need to be able to both get from A to B in a reasonable amount of time and we need to also be able to have development in our cities? Like, How do you deal with those two things that both of those needs need to be met? I'm going to answer it simply, but I think you're looking for a deeper answer. But let me answer it very simply. And then you can kind of push back a little bit in specific ways. Basically, we need to build great roads and we need to build fantastic streets. If you, you know, look at those as being two extremes, we have tended to be in the middle of those two, like a compromise between them. And we actually need to make a decision. Is this going to be a road or is this going to be a street? If it's going to be a road, now you've got to talk about removing access limiting the number of intersections and improving the road function of that corridor. I mean, 90% of the stuff that we now today have as strodes need to become roads because there isn't enough demand in the marketplace to make them into streets. Okay. I was in Sarasota last week and we were talking about their building pattern and I made the point, you know, you're building all these like 20 story towers all over the place. You have like one story strip mall, vacant lot, 20 story tower. The vacant lot is valued as if a 20 story tower is going to be built on it, right? But if you actually built a 20 story tower on every vacant lot, the population of Sarasota would have to go from 60,000 to like 2 million, right? There's never going to be 2 million people in Sarasota. So your land use ordinance never is like, never chuck. <laughs> your They're, land use ordinance is like completely out of whack. Have you seen their 30-year plan? I mean. no. So from a road standpoint, it's the same. We have so many miles of strode. I mean, we have... I would venture hundreds sure of thousands of miles of strode. You think 90% of the strodes need That's just to like a get, I, I think that 90% of the strodes what are What percentage to, of them need to just become nothing? Well, I think that that will be the, what will happen. If you step back and analyzed all your strodes and said, okay, this one's a street, this one's a road, the vast, vast majority of what you analyzed as strode from a productivity standpoint would need to become a road because the land use is never going to be productive enough to justify it being a street. When you then look at all the roads, what you're going to find is that you really only can justify a small percentage of them and the rest of them are going to become private, go away, become dirt, gravel, what have you over time. Hmm. And actually that aligns with where we're at financially from a DOT standpoint, you know, that we've, we've got too many lane miles. You can't maintain it all. Right. Well, all right, let's talk about where roads connect to streets then, because yeah. if you have roads and streets, yeah. that sounds great. But yeah. if I'm in the city and I, or in the neighborhood, whatever, I'm in my neighborhood right. and I want to get onto the road. Well, so I've got to get my car somehow from my house to the road okay. uh, to get onto the next town or whatever. So how do we do that? How do we well, connect it to? Now you're talking about just a world with automobiles. I mean, let's talk about that. I think that's yeah, the world we I mean, live in. But primarily. let's say, but let's focus on kind of the smaller town areas. Like, I mean, I could say, sure, that maybe there's a bus or something, but yeah. the bus has to get from wherever yeah. the depot is yeah. onto a road at some point as well. Or even if I'm in a, a more medium sized city and I had something like, you know, a train or something like that, that might work there. But right. in the small towns, you still got to somehow get from small town A to small town B. Right. Um, probably the car remains the most realistic way to do that for the foreseeable future. Sure. I mean, maybe the indefinite future. So how do we get from the street to the road? How do we tie those two together? What's the transition? In the small town context, it's really easy to understand. I think when you get in the big city context, you know, a large urban area, Minneapolis, St. Paul, there's a lot more nuance and the volumes of traffic obviously are different. And But there's a lot more options for responding to because there's more mass there. But let's just look at the small town standpoint. I was in Ireland and I got a car when I was in Ireland. So I, I drove all over. 
And you would be driving on their version of an interstate, which for us would be like a crappy county road, right? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we we like Ireland. I love (laughs) Ireland. It was enchanting. (laughs) You're driving along on a road that we would say is a very low level of service kind of road, you know, sharp curves, hills that are not flattened out. That doesn't sound like a crappy county road to me. That sounds like a scenic highway. Okay. I'm talking about crappy (laughs) from... A highway engineering standpoint, right? No, from a user standpoint. I'm just trying to help us not make enemies. I'm trying to help us not insult the, right, the whole country, country of Ireland. Ireland. Right. Yeah. No, love Ireland. I recommend to go there because they have crappy roads, right? Yeah, okay. That's part of the enchantment of it. I tried three um, times to give you an output, Chuck. And you just, he just won't take it. Okay. Uh, so, so they have these modest highways, right? There we go. So you're going along at whatever speed you're going along, their highway speed, which it was in kilometers. I can't convert in my head. 50, 60, 70 kilometers per hour, whatever it is, you get to the outskirts of the small town. And one of two things happened that's kind of awesome. You either hit like a roundabout, all of a sudden, like, bam, there in the distance is this round, you slow down, you go through it, it's a traffic calming measure. And on the other side, you find yourself going like 10 miles an hour, and you're in a city, right? Is like the roundabout is the road to street transition. It's the gateway. Yep. The other thing that I saw and experienced a lot was the road would actually like neck down. So if you think of like a 12 foot lane, all of a sudden over the course of a few hundred feet, necking down to like eight and a half feet, like something that would feel really constrained and tight. And as soon as you got through that constraint, and sometimes there was even like a curb on both sides. So it was like, we're serious about constraining this thing. And then it would go back to like nine feet, 10 feet, something like that. But what that constraint does is you just slow down, right? It's telling you as a driver, you don't have as much margin for error. And so as human beings, we react to not having enough margin for error by slowing down. Hmm. And so what it does is it was a traffic calming mechanism that would basically get you slow, Then all of a sudden, bam, you're in the city. And when you're in an Irish city, for the transportation engineer who like believes that this American system we have is great, it it would be a nightmare because there's cars turning all over the place. The city is basically like a parking lot, you know, because yeah, cars are parked randomly. There's people walking across the street. You're driving, but you're driving like five, 10, 15 miles an hour, kind of making your way through these blocks. How do they have like painted lanes? Oh yeah. The painted lanes, stop lanes and everything. Every now and then you'll see a signal, but a lot of the intersections were not signalized. Yeah. You might have a stop sign or you might just get up there and like make your way through the intersection. So how do you deal with um, getting all the way across town? If you're trying to go, let's say you're trying to go from A to B to C. It seems like the intuitive issue there is that, well, if you're trying to get from town A to town C and you have to go through town B along the way, the strode is like a compromise that you slow down a little, but you're still able to kind of get through, right? right? You can go 40 miles an hour. That's not too bad, you know, (laughs) but obviously when there's all the lights and everything, that does slow you down a bit, but it seems like it surely that must be better than when you're going through at 10 or 20. Like, how do you, how do you make any kind of reasonable time? Well, here's the key. And we'll stick with the Irish town for a sec. When you get to that Irish town and you would go through, you would have this city with like, you know, 5,000, 6,000, 8,000 people. To get through the town would be like two minutes. You know, I mean, you're talking like 12 blocks, right? It was not like miles and miles. My little town here, 13,500 people, it took you 10 minutes to get through town. You know, it's like four miles across this place. There's nobody here. But then you got all the stop signals and all this stuff. Yes, you can go 
40 miles an hour between stop signals, but you've got a traffic signal, you know, every other block and you know, you've got all these other stuff. It is so spread out. I wrote this thing way back. In fact, I think it's in the book. It's in the thoughts on building strong towns book, the volume one where I showed how, like if, if you literally drove like 70 miles an hour on the road part and then drove 15 or 20 miles an hour on the street part, you get to where you're going so much more quickly. You know, if the street part is like the size of a city that you could actually maintain, you know, like in a street standpoint, like this city, there's only enough a critical mass here for like six good blocks, right? Instead of the four miles of crap we've got going through the middle of town. If you actually had those six blocks that were really good and you went 15, 20 miles an hour through them, but then went 70 miles an hour the whole rest of the way, your travel times would be so much lower than going 60 miles an hour outside of town, having to go 45 miles an hour in the transition for like two miles, and then going 30 miles an hour through town for the six miles, and then get back out and go fast again. Again, kind of putting everything on that we're either going to go really fast or we're going to go really slow, and you limit the amount of time you go really slow, but you get a ton of value back for it. Well, and it seems like also, I've been trying to kind of like circle around this with you, You're talking about a difference there between your peak speed and your average speed, which are really not the same thing. And also between your peak speed and your travel time. Travel time, right. Which are not necessarily the same thing either. It's funny because we design for a speed, but then we kind of, engineers kind of measure and report things in terms of travel time. But we never really try to optimize travel time except via increasing speed. And that's not the way to do it. It clearly does not work. Well, it seems like the misunderstanding there yeah. is that there's not a one-to-one relationship it, it, where precisely. speed always lowers travel time. Not at all. In fact, you know, th- one of the maddening things... But that's things, really a counterintuitive thing, Chuck. So can you explain sure. that to us? Like, So if there's not a one-to-one relationship between your average speed or your peak speed right. and the travel time, right. then that implies that you might actually get across town in less time going slower. Yeah. That seems impossible. How can that be? Right. Let me give you the thing I did in Kansas City. I wrote this thing, you know, here's what you can do to make your downtown and your city not suck. Like it, sorry, Kansas City, but we're having a little, we've had a little few going for just trying years, to make right? everybody hate it today. <laughs> so, Don't get him started about so, Texas um, and all the windmills. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I said, you got to remove your traffic signals. Like your traffic signals are what is causing your congestion. Remove the traffic signals. Get rid of all the signals. Are you trying to kill people, Chuck? Yeah, and that's what I got. Chuck like, Marone, are you trying who, to get people killed? Who is this insane man, Chuck Marone, trying to tell us to get rid of our traffic signals? And I said, get rid of the traffic signals and design the streets so that you would actually drive 20 miles an hour. You have 15, 20 miles an hour. Yeah, but that's and slowing us down. Chuck. I know. That was the response. Like, this guy's an idiot. He's going to kill everybody. I mean, if we're and going gonna, 15 miles an hour, yeah. we'll never make it through town. So what I did is I showed, like, from my hotel to get to the airport was like a 25-minute trip, right? Then that's what Google was telling me, sure. right? Of that 25 minutes, the first 16 blocks were in the downtown, and then the other like 18 miles or whatever was outside on the highway, clearly on a road, right? A highway. They've screwed those up a little bit too by having all the interchanges and accesses and everything. But, you know, despite that, you're, you're on a highway, you're traveling at decent speed, could do it better, but it's there. Okay. On that trip, if you were to drive 15, 20 miles an hour through town, you could get through town in like a minute and a half, right? At 30 miles an hour, it was only like slightly faster than that. Of your total trip time, it was nothing. Like the amount that you were going to spend in town was was nothing, right? 
But that assumed that you weren't going to hit any signals. In my world, traveling 50 miles an hour, you wouldn't need a signal because every intersection would have a roundabout or some type of shared space and you would just make your way through it like you do in a parking lot and you're not going to hit anybody. You're just, traffic's just going to flow, right? But in the current system that we've got, you would have to stop. There were like 12 different traffic signals you were going to have to stop at on the way out of town. The odds of you hitting every one green, they're like nothing, right? You got 12 of them. You're going to hit two or three or four or 10 red. And at each one, you're going to have to sit and wait for 30 seconds, 45 seconds, 90 seconds. Your travel times are just blow up. You're spending the vast majority of your time sitting at a signal so that you have the privilege of going 30 miles an hour to the next signal. Instead of just having traffic flow through the community at very low speeds. So the key difference there is you're talking about that if you could sort of slow flow through the city at 15 to 18, something like that, miles an hour, yeah. without really stopping, you know, zero minutes of stoppage time. Right. As opposed to go 30 miles an hour and then zero, and then 30 and then zero, right. and 30 and then zero. Right. Like your actual average speed that you, you make when you factor in all the minutes that you sat still, it's actually less than that 15 miles an Huge. hour. Huge, yeah. So you're actually getting through in less time because you keep having to stop. I did a thing here in Brainerd where for like a month, I had a my phone, GPS, I had a one of those apps for biking, and I used it around town here. So when I would get in my car... And I would start moving. Oh, to see what your effective... Yeah, I would hit it. And then when I got to my destination, I would stop it, right? So I did that in town for like trips here around town. And I found that my average travel speed, right, which factors in how fast I go when I'm going and then sitting at lights, my average travel speed was like less than 10 miles an hour, Wow. right? Because you spent the vast it's majority of your time. Than a bike. It is. You were using a bicycle timer, but that's a terrible average it, speed for a bike. It's terrible average speed for a bike. Right. So, On a bike, for reference, for anybody who's not a, an avid cyclist, and the people who are really avid cyclists might complain with the numbers I'm going to toss out here. But I find in my experience on a bike with a speedometer on it that I can go 14 miles an hour without breaking a sweat. That's assuming it's fairly right. flat. If it's, yeah. not, if it's not hills to deal with, I can go 14 miles an hour without breaking a sweat. Yeah. And 17 to 18 if I push it at all. Right. So it going so, faster than 17 or 18 requires much more effort. But, you know, those are the speed ranges that are realistic on right. a bike. So, so you're saying we've put yeah. all this massive infrastructure in and done all this effort and that our speed is actually a significantly less than yeah. what you'd get on just riding a bike around town. In my town here, and you got a little tour here this morning for the first time. In, in my it's town... It's nicer than he makes it sound. <laughs> where we have... I've seen a lot worse. <laughs> in my town where we have <laughs> obsessively reoriented for the automobile, we have been obsessive about designing every space to accommodate high-speed traffic. Your average travel speed is nine miles an hour. Hmm. What are we gaining? We're not getting anywhere quickly. And what's, what kind of cost difference are we talking about? If we sort of do a thought experiment where... Yeah. We built all the road that we would need, all the street surface, all, all the sort of, you know, pavement that we would need for everybody to get around on a bike instead of everybody to get around in a car. What kind of cost savings are we talking about? Well, let's even expand that a little bit more and say we built a place that was not designed around cars, but that accommodated cars and was designed more around travel time than travel speed. I mean, I think you could cut the infrastructure in our, there's two sides of this equation. How much could you cut the infrastructure, but then how much would you get back from a land use, like investment standpoint? Creating I think more you could, valuable property. I think you could cut the infrastructure by a third to a half in terms of the cost of building it. But you would, from a land use standpoint, 
it's infinite. I mean, there's no peak to how much you could increase that. You know, I wouldn't even venture a guess, but the notion that you could double your property values in a generation in real terms, not in nominal inflation adjusted terms, but in like real terms, add real value and, and higher investment seems like a no brainer, like easily hmm. because you'd have more value. I mean, you'd have so half the cost value double the value. So yeah. That's the essence of the mobility problem we've got is that we've built this really, really expensive stuff that yields very little. And we actually need to build cheaper stuff that will yield far, far more. So how do we start to clear up this misunderstanding? I mean, it seems like we have this systemic issue nationwide that we have these uh, sort of ideas that we got backwards. Where did these ideas come from? How did it get to be that everybody thought this was the way the world was just going to work? And and how do we go about trying to uh, change those ideas? I've tried to figure that out. I don't hold the notion that somehow we're smarter today than they were, right? Like they were all dumb and we're all smart. I also don't hold to the notion that they were great and we're greedy. You know, I hold to the notion that like we're all people and we're kind of the same you know, regardless. Yeah. Well, we just one have, thing I can say is if you've seen the videos of what people in the 50s thought the interstate highway system was going to be like, yeah. it's obvious that they had never seen the interstate highway system. Right. <laughs> I mean, it didn't, it didn't exist, right? So they, <laughs> they couldn't have seen it, right? Right. It didn't exist. But their cartoons, their illustrations they made to show like, this is what the highway of tomorrow will look like. Right. There's no cars on them. Right. So it's very obvious that they had no data available to study. Well, yeah. we have data now, so that's a big, big right. difference. You know, I've gone back and I've read like the newspapers here from that period of time. Mm-hmm. You see two things that kind of jump out at you. The first is that the cities weren't great. We look back and we sometimes get nostalgic to like, oh, if we could just go back to like what we had and that was so it wasn't perfect. Like it wasn't great. These were places that were congested. They were sometimes dirty. You know, there wasn't opportunity for everybody. Do you know about all the pollution that they had? Sure. Have you, uh, have you heard this uh, anecdote before? I don't know if this is a hundred percent factual in every single city, but I think that it was generally considered in the early 1900s that cars were a huge, huge opportunity oh, to remove pollution from yeah, cities. Yeah. The pollution that they were specifically very worried about at the time was horse manure. Was manure, yeah. That, you know, by comparison, car exhaust seemed to just disappear into the air and it's gone. It's forever, you know, magically vanished. Uh And I mean, I think if anybody's spent any time on a farm, you could see that car exhaust is less obnoxious than if you had manure caking every corner of your street. But if you look at a city like Brainerd, there's some gorgeous photos from like the 1950s when we clearly had cars, mm-hmm. right? Where the city had not been deconstructed and ripped apart and we had not built all this obnoxious stuff out on the edge yet. Yet we were a society of people who were starting to drive and had cars, right? So we kind of overshot. Okay. The transition is the important part. And this is what I've struggled with and tried to figure out. So you read in the articles two different things happening. The first one is that all the shiny and new stuff is being built out on the edge, right? So you get like the first generation of the motel, right? The That stuff out on the edge. And they'd have like a swimming pool, right? Oh my gosh, that's awesome. And then you get like the drive-in uh, movie theater and the drive-in restaurant where you can order the cheeseburger from your car. You know, this is all the cool stuff. Now you've got this old downtown, right? And people are trying to like 
we want to be new, but we're in this location and I've been here for generations and I don't want to walk away from it. I don't want to give it up and I don't want to move out to that and I don't have the money to do it anyway, but I've got to be competitive with them. So the second thing you see is not only this like celebration of the new, but you see this push. Well, the way it manifested was we took our government buildings and the land that we could get and we ripped it down and we built parking lots. So you look in like the early generation of doing this, it's insane now to think of, but we took like our big federal post office, like this gorgeous building. I mean, a building that we would kill to have today and ripped it down and build a parking lot. Why? Because we wanted to to have that rejuvenation, that new in our downtown as well. You know, we wanted to have the cool stuff that was going on on the edge. We wanted to be able to capture some of that and compete. So you see the armory go down, you see the depot go down, you see the historic post office go down. Why those buildings? Those were the pinnacle buildings of the prior model, right? Those were like the huge successes. Why those buildings? Because we could get our hands on them. Like we could tear them down. And we thought if we tore those down, put parking lots in, we could keep all the rest of the stuff. And what we found out is that parking race was like a race to the bottom, right? As the stuff on the edge continued to develop and that model became more and more sophisticated, you got the like more refined, evolved parasite, the Walmarts, you know, like how do we suck the most value out of this new approach? That's the big box. That's the mall. That's the, you know, those are like the parasite perfectly adapted to that system, right? So the yeah, but it also seems like almost even in a simpler way than that, that there's something about sort of drive-by buildings that just doesn't have sticking power. Because you look at the motels that were the first generation that were the shiny, new, yeah. impressive things in the, in the 50s, right? But there's so few of those left that were maintained and loved, you know? Right. You find that there's these Main Street buildings that are 100 years old. That's common, you know? I mean, right. the ones that are still around today are... Uh, probably going to continue to be around for another hundred years because right. the way that they were built and the way that they've been kept Some up. of them. I think it's important to understand and not nostalgize too badly, like to too great of a degree, what was done before. Because a, a lot of times I've seen these planners like, oh, we build such crappy buildings out on the edge and we really need good buildings. So what we need to do is mandate like a really high quality of building. And that's not at all what our ancestors did. I've gotten in trouble for using the word ancestors. So I'll put like this disclaimer on it. When I say ancestors, I mean ancestors around the world for thousands of years who built in this very common pattern that evolved on every continent and every latitude all over the world. You look at it and the first iteration of their building was just cheap crap, right? The pop-up block that I show here in my hometown in the curbside chat. These were literally like some lumberjacks that got off the train and planed a bunch of wood out and popped up these little shacks. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a huge investment, but that was like the speculative investment of its time, right? And when it became more mature, they ripped those buildings down because there wasn't much there to take down. And they built something that was going to have some more permanence, like a generation of permanence. Right. And then when that place continued to become more and more valuable, now you got the next plateau, like the next pinnacle of great development, which was the granite facade buildings and the marble columns and the, the really nice stuff. That's what we ultimately tore down. But at the time we were building that really nice stuff in the core downtown, if you go out on the edge, 
what you saw were like cheap, crappy little buildings, like right, little sure. pop-up stuff. What I'm getting at here is, though, that what you don't tend to see is that when that first Walmart went in, right? right after 15, 20 years, you see that the initial investment is the same. It's the cheap crap goes in first, and you're like testing the waters of that bit of market, right? Right. In most cases, though, in the automobile-oriented city, you don't get a second generation. No, because you're just building. Okay. You the, go to the next site, the, this and is, you build another cheap crap building. This is what I'm you saying. Leave the old one empty. Yes, but understand what's behind that. Right. In the traditional style, the speculative stuff's on the far edge. And that's the first like cheap increment. And if it doesn't go beyond that, it just sits and waits till the community churns a little bit more. And then that land becomes more valuable. And then it will go to the next generation. Or it just fails. Or it just fails. But it's okay. It was a small investment. Right. And we wait for the next generation when things are going and it, it will work. There's essentially a place for the highest quality development and the lowest quality development in that system. In the auto-oriented system, there's no place for super great development. There's no place for like the really expensive marble dome building with the great, but there's no place for like the really cheap crap either. All you get is this like mid marginal stuff that has literally one life cycle to it. And when that building reaches the end of its life cycle, I mean, it's just cheaper and easier to go build somewhere else yeah, than it is to like rehab that difference. The key difference I'm trying to kind of uh, see if we can draw out here is it seems like once you're already driving to your destination, then the value of a particular piece of land... We've devalued is, location. Yeah, location's right. not so important anymore. It's funny because you And if hear, location's yeah. not so important anymore, then there's a lot less pressure to say, hey, we already have this prime property. Right. Let's tear the existing thing down and rebuild in place right. a second generation quality thing. Yeah. Instead, it's, well, let's just go a mile down the road and buy another <laughs> right. site and right. we'll just abandon this one. Well, you hear realtors talk about like, oh, location, location, location. That's the most important thing in real estate. Yeah. And it, it's total crap. Yes, there may be like in a short term, like transitional time period, like this location may be better than this location. But in terms of like our current development pattern, the value of every location is transitory. You know, because pretty soon the next big location is going to be somewhere else because this one will have gone through the predictable growth, stagnation, and then rapid decline. Well, and it will be a crappy place. We've seen in a lot of major cities that you end up with sort of a favored quarter, which implies that three quarters of the city is not favored. Well, and it's basically that you have, you know, you have most of the town where the location doesn't really matter that much. A few, a large, a few I think, places. I think in large cities, you see that. Yes. And in mid-sized, in small towns, what you really get is just a pattern of like rolling decline. Yeah. You know, Jane Jacobs describes like cities having rapid growth, stagnation, decline, and then rejuvenation. Like Mm -hmm. that is a natural cycle for cities. For small towns in this post-World War II experiment, if you look at a particular site or area, it is growth, stagnation, rapid decline, and nothing. That's it. Mm-hmm. Like, you're done. And and so you see, you know, 60 years out, you just have this rolling decline in places, and then, like, there's nothing that comes next. Yeah, and the rolling decline, that's what I was trying to kind of see if we could hash out, is yeah. it seems like that is the difference between what was happening in towns of all sizes yeah. before in the pre-war culture right, and in the post-war culture that the rejuvenation cycle kind of went away. In pre-war, you know, decline was expected in the speculative areas. You had all your experimentation, all your speculation going out on the edge of the community. But in the core, essentially those things had proven 
right? They had gotten to the next plateau of value. So if there was stagnation or decline, it was only going to be modest until you could make that next jump up to the next plateau. So the growth like went, instead of being like a bell curve where you've got nothing, instant growth, and then you know rapid decline, you had growth like by plateau. Mm-hmm. So you would get to this level and then the next highest level and the next highest level. And you may bleed a little bit in between. You know, there may be a little bit of like downward trend in between those, but it was always like a waiting for the next jump up. Yeah. So you could withstand from a resiliency standpoint, this is the Nassim Taleb in me. From a resiliency standpoint, it was designed to be resilient and like not go way, way backwards. Where today it's either like it's a pass fail test. I mean, it's either going to be great or it's going to totally be gone. And there's not a lot in between. That idea of rolling decline, I think, is really important in the context of misunderstanding mobility. Yeah. Because what you're talking about is that, in a way, a city facilitates that rolling decline pattern by investing in mobility that facilitates a rolling outward of new development. Right. Because when you provide the access at every point down the highway, right. you're now saying that we are opening the infrastructure to support this yeah. wave yeah. where the new cool stuff is always at the edge. And that the next new thing is just the next thing further out each time. And we're going to provide the infrastructure as required to continue that sort of rolling outward. Yeah. Even when the market is not driving it. Whereas, you know, if you had sort of this road versus street mentality of saying, well, our market isn't growing right now. You know, our community is like stable, but we're not growing. So we're not going to provide any new access on the highway. We don't, we don't need it. There's no growth, right? Right. So we need to just keep our energy in. Right. Or if that wasn't an option, you know, because cities need growth, but the growth right, was but in. They don't a, always have it. That's the thing. No, they don't always have it. But if growth were like an incremental part happening on the edge, mm-hmm. that's vastly different than mining a highway corridor. That's like adding a street, sort of one block at a time. Well, that's exactly what it is. Instead right. of having the road where right. you sort of just roll down the corridor totally. at these different scales. That, that's totally what it is. I, I'm not allowed to write about St. Cloud, <laughs> the okay. city here in Minnesota, because my wife is a newspaper reporter in St. Cloud. And I just have like very much respected her profession and not wanted to be like commenting on things that she may someday have to write about. But I think I can talk about a <laughs> living here because in St. Cloud, a city here in central Minnesota, You've got the city itself that has the Walmart and the Sam's Club, right? And they're on the edge of the city. Mm-hmm. And they were kind of the thing where we built the highway out and then you got the Sam's Club and the Walmart. And, and, you know, a generation plus ago, that was like the big, huge investment, right? We used to here in the little town of Brainerd, when we would do like school clothes shopping and stuff, we would drive every, you know, load everybody in the VW bug and drive down to St. Cloud for one day in the fall and do your school clothes shopping. Cause that was where all the stores were right now in the city, just like North of St. Cloud, they've gotten the brand new super Walmart, right? Mm. They abandoned the Walmart in St. Cloud and they're building the new super Walmart in the neighboring city. And the neighboring city is all, man, aren't we smart? Aren't we good? Look what we've done. I sit back and look at it and I'm like, you know, there's a hundred plus million dollar investment in the state highway that was built because they had screwed up the old state highway by making it into a strode. So they built this new state highway like around the city so that it could actually like restore the road function and get some movement. Mm -hmm. They've been slowly like strodifying that thing. Yeah. Now they're putting in 
they've put in this new super Walmart with, you know, all the accompanying fast food drive through places out on the edge of it, a new diverging diamond interchange. This has taken tens of millions of dollars from city's budget, the county highway budget, the state highway budget, and all this stuff. And all we've really done is facilitate the movement of a Sam's Club and a Walmart that were right next to each other out to the edge in a different city in a new kind of model, you know, in a, in a new layout and a new design, a little bit bigger building. I look at that as like, that's what we've done again and again and again and again. In a sense, it's so obviously not progress that it's hard to even accept that people could call it progress. You know, it's, it's hard to even understand someone who could look at that and call it progress because you cannibalize the downtown of the city to build it the first time. And now you've essentially left this like wasteland on the edge of the city to build the next generation of it. And you have to, if you're a thinking person, ask, okay, what's the next act in this story? You can't really believe if you're in Sartell, this new city where it's going to, that you're building a place that is going to create intergenerational wealth now for indefinitely. You've got to be looking at this as like a transitional type of thing, right? Because you just saw it as a transitional thing in the yeah, other community. it just came to you. Right. Yeah. But It's going to leave you someday. But you're investing so vastly much of your wealth to make it happen. Mm-hmm. How can you be doing that for something so transitional? This is the, I think, insanity that our development pattern has created in these cities where like this somehow makes sense to people. And this is where I like find myself like, can I even function in this society sometimes? Because it's like, you know, I look at that and it's so obviously like a dumb financial transaction to do, but yet to the vast majority of people, it's a very logical, logical thing because in the short term it cash flows quite nicely. Yeah. Let me circle us back to, uh, question I started to ask you a minute ago and we didn't really quite get into it, which is what does it take to change people's understanding of mobility? I mean, we have this machine, this system that produces this, right? Where would we begin to try and change the machine to not produce this anymore? That's a really tough question. And I don't know as I know the answer to that. I know the easy answer. I mean, the easy answer is going broke and that's, that's coming. I mean, that's like on the horizon, right? So when the pain of the current system gets so bad And the pain will be, we don't have the money to fix anything, so everything will start falling apart and not working, and then people will adapt to that. And I think what will rise out of that are places that do it right, that are productive, right? So a good road is going to be a productive investment because it will connect you between two productive places. The productive places will have good streets, so they'll be productive. And by productive, I mean financially viable, right? When you get to a world where the finances of it collapses, the only thing that will be left or the only thing that will function after a shakeout will be places that are financially viable. So in a sense, how do you change it? Will you just you know go broke? How would we change it without going broke? I mean, how would we change it without becoming Detroit like across this whole country? That's a really difficult, difficult thing. And I'll give you one kind of overriding thing. I think that we have to get away more than anything else from the centralized, politicized, slush fund way of funding transportation and try to get as close as we can to a way where, to the greatest extent possible, people are directly paying for what they use. 
in a highway standpoint, that would mean more toll roads, more mileage charges, less things like sales tax slush funds and gas tax slush funds. The idea being, you know, we're massively overbuilding now. Those types of financing mechanisms just encourage more and more overbuilding. I would want something that's far more direct. The other thing I would do is I would say local governments need to have more skin in the game. If you're going to mine the value of a highway for your own like short-term economic gain, whether you are a private investor or whether you are a local government, there needs to be some cost to that transaction. So if you're going to go out and get a new interchange on the highway, you know, and then get the big box store and the quickie mart and the McDonald's as a local government right now, that interchange is paid for by someone else. Mm. All the infrastructure for the new stuff is paid for by someone else. And you're just getting tax base. There's got to be some cost to you to do. There's got to be some cost associated with that. That's not just a no brainer, easy transaction. Fairly simple thought experiment. You can imagine that if there was no state DOT, but none of those things would happen. Yeah. There's no individual city that could pay for that stuff. No, there isn't. I mean, maybe in the biggest cities, you could afford to have a few miles of some of that kind of highway. But, right. Yeah, you know. but hardly any. Right. Because it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't pay. Well, wouldn't. I think you can look before the Interstate Highway Program and see that, you know, New York had a couple little parkway stretches that were designed to get sure. people sort of around, you know, bits of Brooklyn and things like that. You know? Right. But it's, it was very few and far between. Right. You have to have so much value to justify doing it. that Houston you... had one bit of road, Allen Parkway, yeah. which was built in the 30s. And it's like four miles maybe. And it goes from downtown kind of down the side of the river to the very wealthiest neighborhood in the state, the River Oaks neighborhood, which is a giant country club and stuff. And it was very much the the rich people highway. Yeah. Even so, it's designed for 45 miles an hour and it's very tight and twisty and turny. It's actually really fun to drive on. Sure, right. But, uh, <laughs> and it remains, actually, it remains really one of the nicest roads. It's totally a road. Yeah. One of the nicest roads uh, yeah. that you can drive on anywhere because it's very scenic. Right. But it was that one little stretch of highway and it was uh, driven by extremely high dollar you know, real estate. Yeah. It's a very, very right. rare situation. Right. Then those are anomalous. And right. you'll see those, I think, in large cities. You know, there's a question you haven't asked that I think is really important. Can I suggest yeah, one? Yeah, go ahead. One of the pushbacks that I always get are from people, when I start this whole roads and streets conversation, are from people in like real urban areas mm-hmm. that say, well, how do I get to the other side of town? Right. Because, I mean, it's fine, Chuck, in your little town that's four miles. And, okay, if it takes you 15 minutes to get across town instead of 12, you know, big deal, right? But when you were talking like Minneapolis or Chicago or, you know, New York, yeah, how in the world, if we start doing your thing and start building, you know, converting our roads into streets, we're just going to have a traffic jam everywhere, right? What's the answer to that? I mean, I get that. It's really hard to perceive, like, how would we back off from what we've got now. I mean, don't we need these highways? Don't we need these high, high speed, fast through corridors? The answer to urban congestion is land use. It, it's not capacity. And that's what's been missing from the dialogue. In urban areas, congestion is like a good thing, right? Congestion means like there's something there. There's something going on. Well, there's lots of people doing lots of activity. Exactly. Which is good for the economy. Which is good for the economy. Yeah. The way you respond to congestion is by improving opportunities or expanding opportunities for people you know, to I, capitalize on. I always try to think of that in terms of pe- people have a really hard time picturing this when it involves their cars because it's just we have all, you know, PTSD about traffic jams we've been in in our right. lives. 
if you picture all of this as a mall, which a mall is designed to be a little microcosm of, you know, Main sure. Street. It's an it's alternative version of Main Street, right? Sure. Okay. If you are an owner of a mall or an owner of a store in a mall, what do mm. you want? Do you want the mall to be congestion-free? You can pop right. in and out and there's no right. problem because there's nobody in your way? Yeah. No. You want that mall to be miserably packed full of people. Right. Because if it's miserably packed full of people, then everybody's making a bunch of money. Right. Right. But and le- so for the shopper, yeah, it's a little bit inconvenient. Yeah. You know, or it's a little bit less convenient, right? Right. But... I think we can all understand from the point of view of having a vibrant economy, the mall being really crowded does not mean the mall is poorly designed. It probably means the opposite. That the right. mall was well designed right. and is vibrant and full of activity and that everybody's prospering there and that's why it's crowded. And that's just the, the, okay. the reflection of the but, vibrant economic activity going on. Now, let me push back a little bit just so we can flesh this out. You yeah. know, the counter argument then is, okay, well, that's great, Andrew. But when the mall gets to be like so congested, because there's so many people there. So you open a new mall. That's exactly it. You open a new mall <laughs> or you expand the mall that you've got like right next door, right? You add on to it. And the interesting thing is this is where we get back into the merits of the traditional pattern that if you have a mall, it's really hard to put a new thing next door because you're talking right. about you've got an ocean of parking around yeah, it and yeah. each one is an island, right? Yeah. But if this is your main street, right. you can just put on one more block. Put on one more block, add another story. There's ways Much to respond to, to this. Right. I look at like the subway system in New York or London or Paris or Rome, you know, these great subway systems. And then you're like, like, well, why can't we build a subway system today? And all these like transit nostalgic people, like I, you know, I, when I wrote this transportation thing, this one guy emailed me and it just like, Chuck, I, all I want is a train, you know? And I'm like, okay, I get, but that subway in New York is the culmination of lots and lots of successful land use, mm-hmm. right? So you didn't go out and like build a subway so you could get Manhattan. Manhattan like continued to grow and evolve and build. And all of a sudden you're at the point where like, you know what? There's enough stuff going on here that we can justify having a subway. It was the congestion that prompted the building that created the congestion that prompted the building that created the congestion that ultimately got you a subway is a viable thing. Right. When we look at congestion as a bad thing that needs to be tamped down and fought by adding more highway capacity, what we do is we eliminate the ability of our land use to mature and grow and prosper and become more productive. But we see that with highways, that when you have more congestion, you get more building, which gives you more congestion, which gives you more building. We see that cycle there too. Sure. The difference is that when we're optimizing for car travel, the best optimization is to reduce access. And that hurts our economic activity. So when you're increasing the capacity of the subway and you're increasing the capacity of, you know, making wider sidewalks or taller buildings, if you make taller buildings, then you're increasing access because there's more stuff in the same amount of space, right? Right. So you have more access to more stuff in the same amount of space. So that investment increased access. And if you add new subway lines, then all those subways are dumping people out. Well, you can fit so many people into a space compared to how many cars you can fit in a space that you're increasing access. More people can get on foot in a space-efficient way right. to these places that have lots and lots of stuff in close proximity. And you know, if you're in New York, you find that, okay, can I get from Brooklyn to the Bronx quickly? No. Right. Do I ever need to? No. Right. So I just don't care. Right. Know? Like it, doesn't, exactly. it just doesn't matter. Exactly. Because if you live in New you just York, don't go to the everything you need <laughs> yeah. is within, yeah. you know, a walking distance of where you're at because it has to well, be. Well, you know, our two right? friends, Ian Rasmussen and yeah. Mike Lydon live in Brooklyn and Queens. It's not convenient for them to see each other. Right. But it also doesn't, you know, really matter. I right. mean, they, they don't live in the same neighborhood and the consequence is they 
both of them are able to live in the neighborhood they live in right. and have a very rich and fulfilling life within a convenient trip. Right. It just is that the geographic radius of that is smaller than what we're used to right. in the rest of the country. On the other hand, I have gone from where Mike's at to where Ian's at by train and by taxi. Yeah. You know, and I suppose if I had a car, I could have done it by car, but that would have been really, really expensive to do. Yeah. 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 And it's not like you can't do it. It's just that you don't, because you don't need to. The because fact you don't that need you, to. Right. The fact that it takes a while, right. you, like, your sense of time and space just changes, right? right? Like in a lot of cities, five or 10 miles is no big deal. In New York, five or 10 miles is a big deal. It's right. a long distance, right? right? Because there's so much stuff that you're not going to move very fast, but you're covering so much ground in between. That your perception of how far is five miles, you know, well, that's like 20 neighborhoods, right? right? So it's just a different, it's just a different scale. Okay. We do have to, before we're done here, skewer the Randall O'Toole argument. I'll lay this argument out and I'll use like mustard as the example. <laughs> so Randall O'Toole has made this argument. I find him interesting. I don't hate him the way that a lot of like urban activists hate him. I tend to have a little bit of libertarian strain to me anyway. So I, I find some of his things to be quite interesting. I think he's got mobility like completely wrong and, and has completely misunderstood the role that mobility plays. I'll put some words in his mouth and maybe he'll listen to this and say I'm wrong, but that would be great. Like he's probably not listening to our podcast. Actually, I think he, yeah, I don't know. Maybe he does. I'm sure people who listen to him have listened to this. Maybe they'll let him know. Yeah. So let's look at mustard. The idea today is that all this like mobility that we have, the ability to get anywhere we want, when we want, very conveniently, allows us to do things that provide more choice to people. So if you went back 50, 60 years, you would have like a neighborhood grocery store and you would have like one or two kinds of mustard that you could get at this oh, neighborhood right. grocery store, right? But now because we're able to kind of agglomerate things together, you can have a big grocery store out on the edge of town with a big parking lot that everybody can access. And that big grocery store will be able to have like 25 different kinds of mustard so that you can go there now and have a much higher quality of life because you can choose not only the place that has the cheapest mustard, but the widest selection. So you're going to get the most stuff at the lowest prices with the widest variety possible. Great. You know, and I think if we're trying to optimize mustard or, you know, name your thing, if, you know, if that's the goal that we're trying to optimize, I think that we can provide like ultimate choice to everybody and, and complete optimization. The problem is we can't do it in a way that's like financially viable. Well, actually, I disagree with you. We can, but it looks like Manhattan and not sure. everybody likes that. Right. The difference yeah, is that in Manhattan, you there, don't have amen. Costco. There you go. I think that that's a good way to take this because yeah. in Manhattan, if you go down Bleecker Street in the West Village, yeah. you'll find every kind of store you can imagine. Yeah. You'll find an entire store that's at this, this may not actually exist, but I wouldn't be surprised if it did. I bet you somewhere in New York, there's a mustard store that right. just sells every right. kind of mustard from right. all over the world. Yeah. And that's the kind of amazing variety of economic activity you get right. in a city that's that dense. But you have big. to have that. Yeah, but not that's everybody right. wants to live in that kind of city. Totally. I think what those guys often sort of mistake is that, well, we want to have people get the same kind of access to market that people who live in New York get everywhere, right? And so the way right. we can do that is we make one mega mart that serves a hundred mile cashment, right? And that will somehow work out. And what we're finding is that that scale depends heavily on these governmental subsidies. This whole like daisy this, chain of massive subsidies. Right. And that that's the yeah. part that has turned out not to be financially viable. Right. And it's not that it's not a nice idea. I mean, there's sure. things about that that make sense. Hey, Costco seems cool. Like it's a great thing to be able to have that kind of choice and variety. But 
only if it pencils out. Right. If the math simply doesn't add up, that the government of your city or your region is going to go broke trying to make that possible, right. then at the end of the day, like, I'm not going to die if I only have two or three kinds of mustard available. Right. You know? Well, and we, you know, we... <laughs> That's I, what we have Amazon.com for. I was just going to say, you know, <laughs> we live in the, the center of Minnesota here. I told you today, you know, we've got a lot of diversity here. We've got Finns and Swedes and Norwegians. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, you know, we've got a lot of diversity here. It's robust and multicultural. Right. One thing we don't have that I really enjoy is we don't have blackened food. The first time I had uh, blackened food was in New Orleans. Mm. Uh, I had some blackened shrimp and that is my favorite food. Like if, if I'm coming to a curbside chat in your community and you want to like bring, you know, Chuck blackened <laughs> salmon, bring me, you know, blackened shrimp, blackened shrimp is like the epitome, <laughs> like the best food you can possibly feed me. I love blackened food, but even though we have like two of the huge chain grocery stores, the massive places, you can't get anything black in there. Hmm. You know, you can't get, they like, they don't even have black and spice. Like it's not on the shelf. Yeah. They got like a whole row. Apparently, uh, Finns and Swedes and Norwegians. There's don't not a care lot of for demand for that here. Food. Exactly. Mm. So you know what I did? Mm. I went on Amazon.com and I ordered myself a thing of blackened spice and it showed up and now I've got blackened shrimp. I got blackened chicken. I cook blackened food at home. Yeah. And I think that to me is like, that's a, in a nutshell that a lot of these people who would argue in favor, and truly it's any one thing, any one thing, whether it's you're trying to argue in favor of something that we tend to like, like rail right. transportation, we think is generally nice, but, you know, or you're trying to argue in favor of more freeways everywhere, which, you know, we're not usually as favorable to that idea. Whatever the idea is, if you see that there's only one solution to a problem, then like you're wrong. <laughs> you're just right. wrong. Right. Right. And so we have to be humble enough to admit that like, you know, the most interesting and compelling strength of humanity is that we're really adaptable and that we come up with lots of different ways of solving problems. And anybody who's out there preaching a message that says there's only one way that this problem can be solved and there's right. only one solution and we need to, you know, stamp out these other people who are distracting us from the one solution. Yeah. They're wrong. It's right. just, that's not how, that's not how humans work. Humans figure things out and yeah. come up with different ways to solve problems. And we should embrace that and roll with it. So if you look at the Randall tool argument, it is basically one that mobility equals prosperity. Right. And it's very clear that mobility between places provides choice and opportunity and expansion but of markets. Is it more accurate to say that access but I was going to say, within places, it is far less about mobility and far more but I think about even access. between places. You can say there's a difference between mobility, which is you know focusing on speed, mm-hmm. and access, which is focusing on sort of connections, right? And Amazon is all about connections and access. Sure, sure. But here in my hometown, in Brainerd, it used to be four hours to get down to Minneapolis, St. Paul, mm-hmm. right? Now it's a little over two. That change in mobility, that that ability for me to get someplace far flung very quickly changes everything about our markets here and pretty much all to the positive, you know? Yeah, really. sure. But the ability of me to get from the farm I grew up on to town in eight minutes instead of, you know, 10 minutes, it costs an enormous sum of money, but provides like no benefit whatsoever. Yeah. But see, I'm, I'm splitting semantic hairs with you here, but... Uh, so to me, I'd say if you use the word access, then the first yeah. case, you gained access to all kinds of new market 
that wasn't previously feasible. It right. just wasn't economical to access Minneapolis. Right. When you cut the travel time in half, yeah. in this case, increased mobility in the sense of increasing speed. Right you gained much greater access to that market, right. which was better for both markets, right? Yeah, yeah. In the second case, you increase mobility a lot in the sense that you can drive a whole lot faster between the farm and town, right. but your access to market is the same as it was before. Right. So, you know, when yeah. mobility and access go together in the sense that, you know, an increase in mobility causes an increase in access or a change in technology, you know, like telecommunications causes it to be sort of the catalog retailer to become possible again in internet form, you know, as opposed to the Sears Roebuck right. days of old, you know, then that's creating new economic access for people and it's creating opportunity. Right. It's just a fallacy that mobility always equals access. And yeah. the two can be correlated, but they aren't always. Well, the, the maddening thing to me is that those great roads between our places mm-hmm. They're being sacrificed today financially because we're pouring all that money into what I say is improving the first and last mile of every trip, which is such an unproductive place to spend. Or they get sabotaged because the towns in between want to line them with big box stores that make it harder to get from A to B. They get mined. What you're really doing is you're mining the collective wealth for individuals and local governments. Well, let me give us a closing question here, and that is this. So we've talked a lot about mobility and the the role of mobility, the role of access, streets versus roads, how this all these understandings we have of how we get around affects how we develop in our cities or our economies, how they function. So we've covered a lot of ground here. My question for you is, what is Strong Towns doing about this stuff? Oh, you know, we're crawling under our collective beds and putting the pillow over our head and just crying (laughs) (laughs) and hoping it goes away. No, no. um, (laughs) Well, we're in the process right now of putting together this, you know, what we've long called the misunderstanding mobility report. Although as it, as it gets written and put together, I think that that title is changing. It doesn't feel right compared to like everything we're putting together now. If you go back to when, when I put the curbside chat together, it started out as a PowerPoint presentation, like an outline. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it has evolved over time as we've had these broader conversations. We're a little past the outline phase for the mobility report. And so what we're doing without going out and giving the presentation 150 times, like I did with the curbside chat before we got to the point where it was like, I think ready for prime time. We're trying to accelerate that a little bit with not only this report, but all the like corresponding stuff that's going to go along with it right off the bat, some videos, a good website, some demonstration projects and some other things so that we can start kind of changing at the very local level, our understanding and our relationship with transportation and start to really fully optimize our investments for our community. I'll make this pitch. I know you maybe weren't expecting this, but we're trying to raise some money to do this. Obviously, it's me and Jim here now and a bunch of people like you volunteering on things. There's a capacity issue there. I've been on the road for like the last three weeks and so haven't had a lot of chance to work on this. But as we kind of move along, the idea is if we can get a couple of these grants we're going after, some people step up and fund some things, we're going to try to roll this out over the coming months to year. And really 
provide the way the curbside chat has provided an alternative way to look at local finance. We want this mobility report to provide a really approachable, understandable alternative to transportation policy in this country that local officials all the way up to national transportation officials can embrace and start to work with. We're stuck right now in this country with one model. And because of that, the debate we're having is how do we find the money to perpetuate this model? And every solution that you see is like, well, we can get you five cents or 10 cents on the dollar of what you need to perpetuate this model, but that's all we can do. That's a model that's done with. We're, we're over. We need something new. So we're trying to fill that void of what does a new American transportation model actually look like? It looks like what we're going to put out here in the coming months. Cool. Well, Chuck, thanks so much for uh, going into all that with us. And uh, I'm sure all the audience enjoyed that as much as I did. Thank you. Everybody. It's uh, fun to be on this <laughs> podcast when I uh, just have to talk and answer questions and not have to like yeah, no, do all the hard work. It's a great time. And, you know, I, I enjoy it. I get to uh, be the person picking your brain for, <laughs> on everyone else's behalf. So thank you. Well, everybody, you can check out our website, strongtowns.org. If you want to learn more about our organization, you can also become a member of Strong Towns if you want to support us. And every membership that we get uh, helps us to be able to produce more content more quickly and do more to spread this message of what we can all do to you know strong would be, towns. You know what would be really cool? If you were like on our staff, <laughs> instead of just a volunteer <laughs> that, you know, uh, if you were actually a member of our staff, I, I think like if we had, you know, more members and more people supporting us, we could probably bring some really fascinating, deeply intellectual people into our organization, help us do some of these things quicker. Like, Andrew Burleson. Yeah. So. so if you want to start the, uh, <laughs> the higher Andrew campaign. Uh, <laughs> I do. I'll donate to that. <laughs> so thanks, everybody. And uh, keep doing what you can to build strong towns. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah. Arizona continues to grow at a fast pace, and as the population grows, so does the need for well-designed transportation solutions. It's a simple equation, more population plus more commerce equal the need for more infrastructure. Now more than ever, the Arizona Department of Transportation needs talented transportation engineers. 
engineers dedicated to creating the transportation solutions that will carry Arizona into the future.